doing this right here for the guys can never cry. Better listen to the show, cause you know they keep it live. Reppin' Jesus with them subjects nobody wants to touch. That's why I give them props, Lord, I thank you so much. With the wisdom of this show, you pass through battling gods and all the different rabbit holes that you know that they spawn. Revelation Radio Networks, man, you know they the deal. Bringing the truth to Jesus, you know they always keep it real. Who me? Blinky D, you know I'm rapping the game. Spitting hot lyrics like my tongue was a flame. Act 1711 Radio Networks where I hang, but don't give me the credit. I do this for his game. Who's he? Jesus, you know he's always the truth. He's always the reason that I step into this booth. Before I go, I need to tell you one thing. Jesus is coming, y'all. Think outside of the cage. Uh, Canary Cry Radio. This is Blinky D. If you like that, you can check me out at BlinkyD.com. But I'm really here to talk about Canary Cry Radio. It's about to get crazy in here, y'all. Pay attention, man. Y'all gonna learn a lot of stuff. Think outside the cage. The queen of the sciences these days is the information sciences, even microbiology. The real challenge there is the DNA and so forth. It's always the information sciences that are the cutting edge. Well, that's exactly what the Bible is all about. This is the ultimate information. I get so tired uh, hearing prominent people on television interviews and stuff saying, well, you can't prove the Bible, but... And I always that bothers me. You can prove the Bible... There are two discoveries that changed my life. The first discovery is that these 66 books, even though they were penned by over 40 different people who didn't even know each other over a period of almost 2,000 years, it's an integrated message. You discover that every detail, I don't mean just that there's a theme in the Old Testament fulfilled new. No, no. Is that every number, every place name, every detail is there by deliberate design. And once you discover that for yourself, you're confronted with a second discovery. If it's an integrated message, the origin of that message had to come from outside time and space. The great discovery of 20th century science is that time itself is a physical property. Time varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity. Well, we think of eternity as having lots of time. That's nice poetry, but bad physics. Because eternity is being outside the restrictions of the dimensionality of time. And he demonstrates his origin by writing history before it happens. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 62. 62. Our guest today is an author and lecturer who speaks on a variety of issues related to Bible prophecy, ancient history, and the apostasy that will form in the church in the last days. Uh, He received a doctorate in theology from the Christian College of Texas back in 1989, and he's the CEO and founder of Bible Facts Ministries at BibleFacts.org and has authored several books, uh, 21 it turns out. Uh, Some of them include Ancient Post-Flood History, Historical Documents That Point to Biblical Creation, Ancient Paganism, The Sorcery of the Fallen Angels, Ancient Messianic Festivals and the Prophecies They Reveal, and Demonic Gospels, The Truth About the Gnostic Gospels. It's Professor Ken Johnson. How you doing, Professor Ken? 
Good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, this is fun. You have quite the repertoire of literature that you've uh, manufactured over there. Well, thank you. Yeah, you must be getting uh, pretty good at it by now, huh? <laughs> getting better anyway. Less oh. typos, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good. All right, Gons, where are we going, buddy? Well, you know, just to start off, can you give us uh, just a little general background about yourself, you know, how you came to faith in Christ, and what got you interested in Bible prophecy? Yeah, I uh, grew up non-Christian until I was about 12. Uh, One by one, my family members got saved, and uh, I just finally understood, went forward, and accepted the Lord. And uh, during the rest of the time growing up, from like 12 to about 18 or so, uh, we went to several different denominations, you know, Assembly of God, Baptist, uh, Independence, uh, different things like that. And I noticed that basically we're all the same. We all believe in Jesus, his death on the cross, and uh, sin nature and salvation, heaven and hell. <clears throat> but there were some specific, just a few differences that the major denominations divided over. And so I just wanted for myself to know what the answers were, whether they're really important or not. And so I started studying the, the early church fathers. And my logic was, if, uh, if I can't figure out for sure, just from the scriptures, I mean, the, those things in the scriptures we divide over, uh, I should be able to, if I can find, the disciples of the apostles. You know, somebody that would tell me, well, Peter told me it was like this, and I went and asked John, and he confirmed it. If you could find people like that, that would answer all the questions. And so I began to research the first and second century Christians and realized that they had basically all the answers. So then I started, uh, in 2006, I started writing uh, these type of things, trying to go back to the original documents, uh, the basic scriptures, how the disciples of the apostles interpreted or said scripture meant on all those uh, different uh, topics. Interesting. That's interesting that um, you were able to sort of notice that even as a young kid now so you started writing in 2006 um uh were you doing anything before that how long of like a incubation period was going on before you started writing all your books there well i i had used the the church fathers uh to preach and i'd been uh working in several churches and in a ministerial uh position and uh been preaching for a while and finally, somebody came up to me and was talking about Hinduism, and I'd found certain things about their origin from one of the church fathers. And I'd wrote a little paper and was handing it out in class one day. And somebody said, you know, you need to write a book about ancient history. And my first thought was, yeah, me write a book. I mean, you know, I no, thank you. <laughs> but then I got thinking about it. It's like, why not? If it's a real small book and there's enough information. So yeah. then, I, then I did the very first one, which was uh, ancient post-flood history. Cool. Now, I'm interested, when you say the, ch- the early church fathers, who specifically are you talking about? Well, starting with, uh, like, Ignatius, uh, who wrote most of his epistles in about 90 AD, which would be about five years before John wrote the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So, what I was really interested in is anybody that is an eyewitness of the disciples, or anybody that could tell me that Grandpa told me many, many times he used to meet with Peter and Paul over at this one synagogue, and one time they had this incident, and this is what happened. And You know, any stories like that that would help uh, us understand doctrine. Right, that's pretty interesting. Now, I want to ask just briefly, and I, 
I hope not to get on a too crazy of a rabbit trail, but you mentioned <clears throat> the origins of Hinduism in this confrontation you had with this individual. In a brief summary, what is what what did you tell him? Oh, basically that there's uh, it, um, well, uh, in doing the chronology again, I've always been interested in prophecy, and several right. of the church fathers had talked about how in the year six thousand it'd be the second coming. Uh-huh. Of course, we don't know when the year 6,000 is exactly, but we know we're getting close. And so one of the things I always like to do is go back into Genesis and look up the dates. You know, Adam was so many years old when he had his son, and he was so many years old when he had his son. And you add them up, and uh, I found other records, uh, like from the book of Jasher and other uh, history records from the Jews, and they all basically had the same numbers. So I was adding these things up, and of course you know then from creation to the flood is 1,656 years, no more or less. And so you can go from there up to the Exodus. The Exodus was in uh, 2448, you know, from creation. And so looking at these dates, you could figure out uh, when Abraham and uh, Joseph and Moses were in Egypt, the dates from creation. And you can go back and put that on the uh, Egyptian records and find out which pharaohs were there and then dig further and find records of these people. So we were doing that for the history book, um, all those things. And I noticed that uh, the story is that one of the groups had finally got fed up with this tyrannical guy who was building a tower in the Middle East. Uh, So they picked up and left and went their own separate way and then founded uh, these certain places. And when you got the date of when that happened and the date that the the Hindus, the, the supposed first Hindus, uh, showed up uh, with that particular language, which would have to be after the Tower of Babel because it's a different language. You have only like uh, about 250 to 300 years for the entire concept of what we call Hinduism to develop. Hmm. Not not millions of years or thousands of years, but we right. know we were we know they were right here at a certain date. We know they were right here at another date. So it be you, you can pinpoint the migrations and the time periods. Interesting. And and you go back to some of the earliest uh, comments. Uh, even our founding fathers mentioned that there's a work called the Shasta, in which uh, talks about how uh, the the Hindu gods like Shiva and and Brahman and these guys were talked about in a much more different light. It's almost like there was a creator god who, because of these lesser gods or angels, uh, the world got messed up. They were destroyed by a flood and. It's the same basic thing as Christianity. And so you can see by going back to the earliest records, the same basic information that confirms the Bible story. Right. Awesome. Well, that, that leads us kind of into the area we wanted to address with you is uh, the Genesis 6 account, you know, because, uh, you know, I've made a video, the Seth I view debunked, and I try to use the Bible itself to show that the fallen angel view of Genesis 6 is the more accurate uh you know, rendering of the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your opinion about Genesis six? And I, I'm guessing you you also um, ascribe to that fallen angel view. How did you come across it? And and how do you you know address people that say that it's the Sethite view is the more accurate view? Well, there's a couple things you can do from logic, but as far as my my background in it, uh, yeah, I would say the same thing. The sons of God are angels. I mean, it's that's consistent through Scripture. And the thing that I noticed is, again, going back to the early church fathers and then the ancient rabbis, uh, before about 200 AD, you don't find a single person 
that uh, says it's Sethite, Canaanite, or it's something else. There's actually four separate theories of what it might be. But they all taught that they were angels that came down. Uh, Nephilim were a creation of angels and humans. And that's basically it. I mean, from Justin Martyr to Irenaeus to all the church fathers taught it like it's fact. Everybody knows about it. Uh, Josephus quotes about it, and you could go on and on. Uh, It doesn't necessarily make it correct. You know, they're not the final ruling God of faith. The Bible is. But my whole concept was if these people were uh, studied under the apostles and the apostles told them this is the interpretation, then that's the interpretation. There's actually the memoirs of uh, Clement in which he talks about how after he converted to Christianity, he said, okay, Peter, I want you to set me down and in a nutshell, just like within 10 minutes or so, explain history to me. Because I know that the Greeks have got some right things, but apparently we're off. And so he basically shares you the history of the flood and creation and the flood and uh, how, how Moses came about and the Jews and the Messiah and the prophecies. Just real quick in like a five-minute sermon. Wow. And even Peter mentioned in there that the fallen angels had corrupted themselves with human women and how they had fallen and how they had changed their habitation or their, their estate and stuff. So again, it's you know nothing from the apostles is, is outside of Scripture. But you've got people that say, look, I asked Peter about this, and he told me this is what it is. Right. Um, just in logic, though, it's kind of interesting to me that people that take the Sethite Canaanite theory, um, it, you know, it could be. It's a theory. You know, it's, it's a fairly good theory. But look at the specific text. It's, it doesn't say that the, the sons of men took the daughters of God. Right. It, t- it says that the sons of God took the daughters of men. So in other words, what you're talking about is evil people walking in and taking the, the daughters of the godly people by force, okay? So the evil people. So if the sons <laughs> of God who are good people are taking the daughters of men who are evil, basically you're, you're saying something like the United States government becomes evil and corrupt, and the only good people left on the planet are the Amish that are peace, peaceable, they don't do war, they know nothing about making war. They decide to turn evil and attack the United States Army, completely take it over. <laughs> you know, completely take it over and take their women. I don't know, man. Sounds you know, pretty shady. You know, I could see somebody falling from good to evil, but right. when you when you haven't ever studied war before and you go up against seasoned warriors and you just whoop them and take their women, that doesn't make sense. Right. So there's a whole bunch of things you could look at and, and the text and the history. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, like the Book of Enoch and, and the Jubilees and other texts, all talk about these things, even to the point of how the angels did the genetic tampering. Right. Uh, all those things are mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so it's That's interesting. That's actually something I would like to um, hear a little bit more about, was the, the genetic tampering in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, how is that even, how, how do you word that in ancient language? Well, it's really interesting. You just kind of describe the process, and it's really not very complicated. And I had a theory that almost fit what I was told after I read it, so I wasn't too far off. But uh, if you think about it, they don't have test tubes, they don't have computers, they don't have lasers, they don't have anything. So if you were somehow going to try to create a new species, how would you do it? Well, you take a, a male of this one and a female of this one and try to put them together. Well... That doesn't work because it just doesn't work, you know? Right. But, I mean, that's basically the only way you would do it. You have to mate in order to get pregnant to have a baby. So, right. 
So there has to be some sort of herb or something that you would use to stop a spontaneous abortion or that, this kind of a thing. Right. But what was interesting was uh, we all know that you take a, a donkey and uh, mate it with a horse and you get a mule. Right. Okay. And most of the time, mules are sterile. Uh-huh. Occasionally, they are not. And so you can do the same thing with sheep and goats. They're two different species, but they're so close, you can actually put them together and you get... I don't know if it's called a jeep or, or what it is, but it's a <laughs> you know. And people do this in the Middle East because they have more more meat. Right, right. right. They eat, eat about the same, but it's just more more meat. And so you have. I knew about those type of things, uh, but what's interesting about them is the chromosome count is so close that you have like a, maybe a sixty chromosome and a sixty two or sixty four chromosome. You mix them together, and the donkey or whatever or the mule has a sixty two or Somewhere in between, you create an unstable life form. Right. And then you take two unstable life forms that are close together and meet them together. And if you do it right, you can do that. But uh, there's a text that's probably part of the Book of Enoch called, it's usually talked about as called the, um, okay, my mind slipped. I'll, I'll remember the title. It's in the back of my, my translation of the Book of Enoch. Um, but anyway, this text talks about the fact of, of how they did this. They took, 200 sheep and 200 goats and put them to, well, I know what happens with that. You get the half sheep, half goat. And it talked about they took 200 horses and 200 donkeys. Okay, well, you get mules. And it dawned on me, why 200 of them? Because most of them won't be able to reproduce. Right. So you need a large amount of them. Right. And it talked about how you would keep doing this with other animals and eventually submix those together. Well, it makes perfect sense. Then that's what they're doing. The angels came and studied and realized what things have what chromosome counts, what could go together and what couldn't, what to mix together to get something that's unstable that you could mix with something else to make something that would work. Wow. It and would that's, take, that's actually would, in the ancient language, you say? Yes. Wow. Yeah, it's part of the Dead Sea Scroll. And so it's, it doesn't tell you anything scientific like chromosomes or anything. Right, right. But if you, if you kind of think that's the only way they could do it, of course, it would take so much, you know, a human being couldn't do it. You couldn't just know. Right. But an angel could come down and say, you have 50 chromosomes. This one has 51. We could put that together, and that would work with this. And in a short amount of time, you could create something that you wanted to do. That's interesting. Uh, so let me ask you this, because in Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God were, or the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Now, there's a couple theories about how they got there afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your theory uh, regarding the, you know, if it's the second incursion or, uh, you know, the, one of the wives of Noah's sons? Uh, what's your theory on that? Well, you'd have to see how they use the word Nephilim. Uh, from the scriptures and the church fathers and from the book of Enoch and, and other things like that, we know that the first story is that 200 angels descended on Mount Hermon, decided to recreate everything in their own image. So they took wives and had children, and we have the Nephilim that come up. And the Nephilim were subgrouped into three separate species. And then the flood came, destroyed everything, wiped it out. We have a record out of the Book of Jubilees, which is another Dead Sea Scroll, that talked about how Canaan, when he left where he was supposed to be, and he went up to the land of Canaan and you know, found it, uh, he went up, and, and uh, the first city that was founded was Sidon, and he named it after his firstborn child, Sidon. 
and that's very close, about the closest you could get to the sea, to the area of Mount Hermon where the angels descended. So it looks like he was looking for something. And according to the text, he found tablets that explained how you create whatever it is they created, the religion and the scientific stuff of the watchers. Wow. And That's so really he, interesting. He decided to start doing experiments because he wanted a, a really great army. You know, and then you're not told what happened, but all of a sudden, according to uh, the Old Testament, all of a sudden we have giants in the land of Canaan that need to be wiped out. Right. And yeah. so those those giants probably weren't Nephilim in the sense of angels coming down and doing whatever they did, but it's Nephilim in the sense of it's a cross species. It's something that's unnatural. And it doesn't matter if the angels created it or if humans created it or somebody else created it. It's the same thing. It's a mixture of species. Wow. So it's that's like, really interesting. The, yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls are answering a lot of questions here. I don't think we've they ever do. talked to anybody who has quite the knowledge of them as you. So let's... Uh, Let's keep going with that. So it's it's kind of like the it's the angel knowledge that was passed down that caused the right. second oh, if you call it a second incursion the second wave of Nephilim. Yeah. Um, so so you so you think that there was some kind of supernatural uh, dimension to this, or was it just like you know Canaan just knew how to genetically tamper with you know crossbreed or whatever? I think there's always a uh, angelic, demonic, godly satanic type influence in everything even if it you're talking about canaan that just thought hey if i do this i can have a good army and i can you know that'll make me king even if that's all he wanted to do something led him to that idea something gave him the the, i mean helped him you know we're all tempted of satan for instance right so even in a, a very lesser sense i'm sure it was demonically inspired to try to again corrupt humankind right okay um, so, but just the, the procedure itself though, do you think there was any kind of technology that, that was involved that, you know, maybe some ancient technology that was far more advanced than what we would imagine? Or, I mean, you know, I'm just trying to get a, wrap my mind around what it, it could have been that was written on the tablets there. Yeah. Or, I, I don't think it needs to be. I mean, uh, any, any being like angels that could come down and do something like that could also invent other things. Uh, we have, you know, car engines, for instance, we have helicopters. I don't know why they couldn't have, you know, made one. It's not that hard. Um, I don't know if there's any evidence to really prove there was anything like that. But the thing that I think is interesting is the fact that uh, it, you don't need any of that. Uh, if, if you know that species 1 and species 2 and species 29 and 57 can be put together in a certain way to get the half, halfway to where you're going... And then mix it with number 129 and number three. Um, you know, if there's something like that, then you just put those things together and let nature take its course. And then you get pregnant and go from there. So it's amazing to think that you could actually do that with no extra scientific things at all. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so, so what about Nimrod? Do you think the, the accounts of Nimrod that we find in Genesis uh, 10 and, and actually 11 well, I guess 11 is the Tower of Babel, but, um, you know, it says that he was a Gaborim, you know, a mighty man. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. the same phrasing that's used in Genesis 6. In uh, the word there, I think it's Kalal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, but it's, you know, became, and it's mm-hmm. also attributed to defiled. Uh, so what happened? What do you think happened there? A lot of people think that, that somehow that means he became a Nephilim. Um, again, if you... 
I don't know how you would search. I mean, you could mix two species together and get a different DNA code. For you to decide, I'm going to now go from being human to something else, it would require some sort of drug, some sort of enzyme or something to do that with. So uh, that's an interesting concept. It could mean uh, just the fact that he was a giant hunter. He hunted and subdued the giants. Uh, He created the first world empire. Uh, It could mean he was a mighty man in that sense. So it's kind of hard to tell. There's a lot of other ancient records, ancient history records of some of his conquests and and how he took over. Uh, It's interesting to me, like when he came up from um, uh, the African plain to uh, attack and create this world empire, uh, where his whereas Canaan was from the on the other coast, you know, coming in, he came over, came the other direction. Uh, but the ancient records say that he came in with an invasion force of 500 people. And I think 500 people, what could you do with 500 people, you know? But yeah. at that time period, there wasn't that many people yet. Right, right. So it's it's just interesting how he, you know, went piece by piece. And what he would do is to attack a city-state. Be like, uh, I live in the small town of Gardner. It has like uh, 19,000 people in it. Uh, right up next is the next city. And if Olathe didn't come to our aid and we were attacked, we could get taken over. And he did that piece by piece. And his main tactic was he would go in and kidnap the, the princes, you know, the children of the king, with the understanding that if the king did exactly what he was told, uh, the kids would be fine. If he didn't do what he was told, the kids would not even be killed. They would be severely tortured for a long, long time. Right. And, wow. and he meant exactly what he said. It's hardcore. And so, yeah, and so city by city by city, his empire grew, and it became a cultic. And some of the ancient records, like uh, the the Book of Jasher, which is a, a Jewish history book that's mentioned in Scripture, one of the few of the thirteen that's actually still around. But it talks about his, the religion that he made up and the the way that he did his kingdom and things like that. So, again, we have a lot more information to kind of piece together how those things actually took place. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the religion that he made up. Is that sort of a kind of a first occultish sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, invention? or? Well, kind of. It's based on the old pre-flood religion, which the rabbis have enough documents that we can kind of piece together what that was. Right. Uh, but uh, he basically took that religion and modified it a little bit. Uh, for instance, part of the old uh pre-flood religion is that you used a form of astrology and the type of astrology you had was basically marking the times and the stars as times for rituals so that you could communicate to spirits and do things right it wasn't until uh, after the the actually even after nimrod's time that the chaldeans invented the concept of the the horoscope which actually perverted the perversion and made it where it was man-centered. I look at the planets to see what's going to happen to me today. Right. right. Totally, totally changed the whole thing. But his thing was that he took the uh, the 12 signs of the Zodiac and made them into gods that you would worship. And he would have like an observatory, or most of the generals in his kingdom would have like little gardens with the 12 statues. They would give uh, and do rituals to one per month. Uh, Abraham's father, uh, Terah, was one of his generals in the army, and he had that kind of a setup in his house. So that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So now let's take a step back real quick because 
we keep talking about, uh, you know, the extra biblical texts, the Jewish history books, and there's a lot of heated conversation regarding the credibility or, you know, the viability of these books and mm-hmm. if Christians should even be looking into them. And me and Gans have, you know, we've talked about it before. And, um, but I mean, you've told me things just in the past, I don't even know, 20 minutes in these books that I really have not even heard before. Um, granted, you have done an uh, astronomically uh, more thorough job looking through them than I have. But what would you say to someone who is sort of questioning the uh, credibility of somebody who looks into those books? Oh, absolutely. I would say definitely look into the credibility of the person and the books themselves. The only thing we know for sure is that the 66 books of the Protestant Bible contain prophecy. And when we look at the prophecy, they've been 100% accurate all the way up through the church age, and we've had 50 prophecies uh, fulfilled since Israel's become a state in 1948. So in the last 60-some years, over 50 Bible prophecies fulfilled. That's not humanly possible. Okay, And no other book in any other religion has anything even close to that. So you have to start with the Bible, trust the Bible as being inspired and accurate, look at what it says, make sure you understand all the things that you can understand from it completely. Uh, In other words, just be a mature Christian, have read the Bible several times and study it on a daily basis, uh, uh, like you and I probably have. And at that point, then, you have questions like, uh, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6, or... Uh, how should we do this, or when is the rapture, or whatever it is we're talking about. And at that point, it just seems logical to me. You don't know for sure all the details on certain pieces, so you try to go further. So uh, the disciples of the apostles is where I started. Uh, Could could their stuff be tampered with? Sure. Uh, They tend to be extremely anti what we would call Roman Catholic. And the only people that would have tampered with them back in those days would have been the Roman Catholic Church. So if they didn't tamper with them to the point of getting rid of them being called stupid by a disciple of Peter, which would be very dangerous, why would they tamper with it to do something that wouldn't help or hurt them either one? Right. So it doesn't, and, and they didn't stamp out the, uh, the Gnostics very well because we've got the Nagamati texts. Right. So That's there's, what I was not, gonna... there's not a whole lot of, of reasoning in that that area. Mm -hmm. But just looking at those things, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been preserved by Jews for 2,000 years or more dug up, nobody's tampered with those yet anyway, because we have the actual texts. And, you know, with Google and uh, the Antiquities Department of Israel, they've put those online, so you can go to Dead Sea Scrolls, um, I forget the link, but you can Google it, and they'll have actual uh, photographs of the text. If you can read Hebrew which, you know, you can learn to read Hebrew like any other language. And then you look at the archaic script, just memorize, you know, just like you and I can read English. So if I used a a little code, you could transfer my code and read what I'm saying. You can actually look at those things and read them like you would a newspaper. I Mm. mean, so so it's it's right there for everybody to see. If you want to read it, read it. Absolutely. Well, that's rad. I didn't know they had that up there, so... There you go, everybody. Go take a look for yourself if you're up up on your ancient Hebrew. Um, You mentioned the Gnostic Gospels there, and I know that you wrote a book concerning the Gnostic Gospels. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the last book I finished last year. Um, 
It's called the Demonic Gospels. And what had happened was I had been, I, I liked the Dead Sea Scrolls and I'd been doing translations. So I, I've done a translation of the Book of Jasher, uh, Book of Enoch, Book of Jubilees, and some other works from the early church, like the Epistle of Barnabas and things like that. And I kept having people come up saying, those are cool. Uh, when are you going to do a translation of, like, say, the Gospel of Judas or Gospel of Mary or, or something like that, Gospel of Thomas? My answer was always, I'm not, because they're trash. They're not, I mean, these things might have been tampered with. They may not be 100% accurate, like Josephus or whatever. But uh, they're not a uh, work of fiction like these others are. And so rather than doing that a whole lot, I produced one book which explained... Uh, uh, for instance, why the, the Bible, the 66 books, are proved by prophecy. Uh, these other works don't have any kind of prophecy in them. The Bible says there's only one God. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin. If you accept that, you can go to heaven. If you don't, you will go to hell. That's all there is to it. There is no ascension to godhood or reincarnation or anything like that. And those are demonic doctrines, and you can't be a Christian and believe things like that. I mean, that's right. real clear in Scripture. And then you have the, what I call the demonic gospels. You've got the gospel of like Philip and Judas and, and all these guys and Mary. And they, if you put them together and look at them, and I've done in the back of the book a synopsis of each one of those gospels, just like a, just a page or so to explain this is what it says that contradicts Scripture. Right. Because uh, it, could, it could have a whole lot of really neat little sayings in it and little cute little anecdotes and stuff. Right. But they very very clearly teach that you meditate, which is forbidden, an Eastern form of meditation, to realize your godhood. And they have a, a form of occultism. And in some cases, they actually give you the rituals on what you're supposed to uh, repeat over and over again to uh, attain enlightenment. Really? You know, and they have actual uh, what they call uh, uh, bridal chamber rituals, which include a sacred sex type ritual. And things that are totally anti-Christian. Wow. Um, it sounds a and lot so, like uh, a lot of like you know the Thelema and the Crowley stuff, and yeah, yeah some, a lot uh, of the exactly. Satanism. Yeah, yeah, the, the, all those guys were considered to be like new newer Gnostics, uh, Thermitic Society, and all that. So it, it's the same same kind of stuff. So I mean, you've got all these supposed things where Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus, and the reason is because Jesus is one of the higher gods, and Sophia, the one that created the mistake is kind of doing penance, you know, fixing everything. And she incarnated as Mary Magdalene. And they're basically <laughs> here to show you Jesus either didn't die on a cross or whether even if he did, it didn't matter because their mission was to show you how you can become a god. And it's right. done through Gnostic meditation. That's, that's the key to salvation. So the Gnostics versus those people that got confused by Peter and the popes. So Interesting. It's, wow. it's that kind of a thing. Now, my next question was going to be who today are sort of using the Gnostic Gospels and, and holding to them, you know, that we could might be able to identify. But, I mean, you just, we just sort of mentioned Aleister Crowley and, and um, all those guys. So mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of in the same realm, I guess, is what you're saying. Right. Well, one, one interesting thing about it is, um, and, and I've noticed this uh, uh, talking with different people, I had a friend who had gotten into um, tarot card reading, uh-huh. and it, it didn't work. And so she went to one of those psychic fairs. I talk about this in my book, uh, Ancient Paganism. She went to one of those psychic fairs and asked the guy, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing everything right. 
And he says, well, it's not about the cards. You have to meditate, be in tune with the powers, and interpret it loosely, and then you'll get to a point where you're very accurate. Matter of fact, you, if you get really, really good, you can actually put the cards away and just do it psychically. Wow. Well, in other, in other words, that means the cards aren't really anything. It's mm-hmm. a connection with the demonic. Well, she decided, ah, I ain't going to do that. That's, that's not my deal. I know what I'll do. I'll get into astrology. And her idea was get one of those computer programs that, pro, that you know, I can see, know exactly today where it is and where it, com- by comparison, and make a perfect horoscope. I can get it down to the second. Right. So there's no debate on what it means. Yeah. Well, she did that, and it didn't work either. So another psychic fair comes to town, and she goes to the, the head guy that's there that's under astrology and stuff and says, I've got the best program. It cost me a hundred and some odd dollars, and, and, and what I, but it's not working. What am I doing wrong? And the guy tells her, it's not about accuracy. First, you have to learn to tap into the powers that are out there right? and look at it and kind of loosely interpret it, and then you'll get good. Yeah. So it's the same story. And so what I noticed was, whether you use the old Canaanite practices or the newer ones today, uh, nothing works without meditation. Yeah. And the ancient rabbis and the early church fathers said that is what the heart of sorcery is, and that the church would not repent of its sorcery in the last days. So you have these people, even if you get rid of all the, the New Age type garbage of the Gnostic Gospels, you have this concept of meditation and learning that you are a God type thing. Yeah, and we have that in the in, coming into the church now through the contemplative prayer and meditations and that kind of stuff, the emergent movement. So it's kind of spooky that way. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about the astrology because um, I've known people and family members of friends and things who just insist that astrology is science because it's based on very uh, solid positioning of the stars and the da 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 da, and you know they just insist that all you do is just read the stars, just read it like a book, and you know it's just never quite it's just never quite worked out that way. There's always mm. been something fishy about it, you know. So that's interesting that you uh, mentioned that it doesn't work unless mm-hmm. you're connecting with the demonic realm there. Right. Which makes total sense. So. One interesting thing about astrology is when I was putting together the book on ancient history, mm-hmm. one of the things that fascinated me was the way the church fathers witnessed. And people in that day were, worshipped Hera and Hercules and Zeus and Saturn and things like that. Right. And what they did is they went back to ancient history books and showed that Zeus was a guy that was born on Crete. He ruled for a while. He died. He's buried here. And Saturn is buried here. And uh, Venus is buried here, and this is what she did, and the histories are all there. So mm-hmm. the question is, why do you worship dead people? Well, they're they're ruling in heaven. No, they're buried in your backyard. Right. You know, Z- Zeus is supposed to be married on the north side of Gnosis on the island of Crete. Hercules is buried in Spain. Everybody knew that. Even as far as like 250 AD, Cyprian uh, was mentioning that people still make pilgrimages to Crete to go to the tomb of Zeus. And so what fascinates me is, okay, when I do the astrology, and again, the horoscope is a later invention. It's not part of the original one, so it's a perversion of a perversion anyway. But I do this type of thing, and I'm going to have strife at work because Mars is here. My love life is going to do, you know, improve or whatever because Venus is here, and Zeus or Jupiter is here, which means this. 
well, why is it these dead people that are buried in Spain and on the island of Crete and Sicily and places like that, what do they have to do with my love life and my <laughs> strife at work? Right. They're dead. They're in a tomb. Yeah. We serve a God who resurrected and came out of a tomb. So when you look at it like that, it's like, this is just plain stupid. Right. And I think when you, when you show the, the connection to dead people, people begin to think, yeah, this is kind of weird. Who, who, who decided that Venus was the goddess of love? Well, Venus was one of the very first uh, pre-flood, or post-flood, rather, madams. There was a war. Most of the guys got killed off. She was a queen on the island of uh, Cyprus, I believe. And she taught the women of Cyprus to practice prostitution, not in a religious sense, but just to make money, because most of the guys were gone. And so she became known as the goddess of love and war. Um, Okay, what does a prostitute and a madam have to do with my horoscope? I mean, she's dead, she's buried, she's been gone for hundreds of years. What does that have to do with a certain planet? She was never at that planet, you know? Right. So just thinking of things like that, I think learning a lot of the history really sets you free from a lot of these myths. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's no, that's amazing. I had no idea about that, about the, that the Greek gods were real dead people from antiquity. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought they were just complete myths and legends just sort of, you know, thought up by people. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea they were even based on real people. Yeah, in some cases, the early church fathers will give you the genealogy all the way down. Like, my, my ancestors worshipped Odin. I'm, I, my ancestors are from Denmark. Right. Uh, Odin was the 20th generation uh, from Japheth and, and, and somehow really? became a god among the Scandinavian peoples. Wow. wow. Which, which, again, is funny, too, because if you look at the legends of Odin, uh, you know, all the pictures have him with one eye poked out. Right. And the legend is that he was doing a, a, a sorcery ritual and his eye got poked out by a raven. Right. Well, how can the supreme god be a man doing sorcery that accidentally gets his eye poked out? <laughs> I mean, think about this. Even yeah. if you believe in multiple gods, there's got to be somebody higher than the idiot that got his eye poked out. <laughs> so, why are my people worshipping this guy? And it requires human sacrifice to worship Odin. My ancestors also worshipped Odin. Um, and you know, the current resurgence of Odin worship is actually an, a really interesting thing to me. I've seen it, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years or something, there's been like a modern renaissance of, of Odin worship and, and worshiping the old, uh, folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of, I mean, uh, is, is resurgences like that? Are they kind of fed by, I don't know ancient texts like the Gnostic Gospels and, you know, the, the Luciferian doctrines and stuff that are up there, is, is all that connected? Or? Yeah, probably. My, uh, my wife has a nephew, I believe, or someone in her family that uh, was raised Christian that because he had a bad experience with his father or, you know, something like that, decided to abandon Christianity, and right. he now worships Odin, you know. And to me, it's funny, though, I mean, it it would be like um, being in the Nazi movement, uh, doing Hitler's type stuff, and then absolutely hating Jews and realizing, hey, I'm Jewish. Just found that out, you know? Right, right. Or, or going back to something like that is just kind of strange. Again, right. if you can make anything, if you can just take part of something and just make it into whatever you want to, we call that a cult. You know right, I mean? There, right. there is a God somewhere, and he said, this is heaven and hell if there is such a thing. It's either true or it's not. You can't say, well, 
I think today I'll worship a goddess named uh, Jennifer. Right, you, know, you, you can't just make something up and expect it to do anything. Yeah. The worship of Odin required human sacrifice. Yeah, that's the big thing. I don't you know, know how you do that in modern culture without you know making some serious criminal commitments at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of those guys will say, no, we did that back then, but we don't do that now. Right. We just do the peace and the nice rituals and we help people. Just well, that's, that's fine, but what if Odin is Odin? And what if Odin, the only way to get to heaven is to follow directions and he expects you to kill people and you're not going to kill people? Right. You know, it's like the worshippers of Kali in Hinduism. It's required in the Thuggy cult to do human sacrifice. And when you're 12 years old, you're required to go to her temple and prostitute yourself. If you decide, well, that's not good with normal society, I won't do that. If there really is a Kali, though, do you expect to get anywhere by de- being disobedient? Right. Well, if they're just figments of people's imaginations and we're just going along however we're going along, then none of it's real and none of it matters. So right. it's kind of weird that you would adopt your religion and, and then just change it like that. Well, it's funny because, you know, Christianity and modern culture, there's so much like, ugh, how could you not, how could you live in modern society and follow Christianity, it's so boring and all this stuff. And you know, the requirements that God has compared to some of the uh, the other religions in the world, if you're really going to stick with it, it's <laughs> totally doable in comparison to, you know, human sacrifices and uh, yeah. 12-year-old self-prostitution, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think we got a, a good deal when it comes to that. Yeah, it's just people aren't aren't serious about anything. Right. The thing that I always mention to when I'm talking about Islam is like you have a book called the Bible and it says that Jesus wants people to be saved. We're supposed to preach and try to convert them. Under no circumstances would I kill one because if I kill somebody that's not a Christian, they immediately go to hell. That's right. the teaching. So I don't want to kill anybody. I want to convert them. Right. On the other hand, you've got the, the, the Muslims have uh, the Quran, the Quran and the uh, uh, the Hadith and then those type of things teach that if you can't convert the person, you kill them. And there's going to be a time when they rise up and kill every last Jew and every last Christian. Um, the books teach that, though. So if, I'm a, if I say I'm a Christian, but I go around killing people, like I'm a, you know, a Ku Klux Klansman who claims to be a Christian but you know, maybe kills blacks, right. uh, I'm a disobedient Christian. In other words, I'm not really a Christian. I'm just saying I am. Right. But if I'm a Muslim, but I don't kill people because I'm nice, I'm not really a Muslim. Yeah, you're, you know, bad, I'm not you're following a bad the book. Muslim for not yeah. killing everyone. And so it's, it's, we have to sit down and look at these things. If you have a religion, everybody's got a freedom to worship whatever religion they want. But if your religion teaches you have to kill everybody, that's not a religion. That's a psychosis. Right. You know? And it needs to be corrected somehow, not allowed. And right. if you're if you're the guy that just thinks about murdering people, but you don't really do it, that'd be okay. No, you don't allow people like that on the street because they're liable to actually do it one day. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. Uh, just touching back on the Gnosticism a little bit again, uh, to my understanding, the what, what the Gnostics kind of teach is that reality itself, all physical matter is evil, and mm-hmm. that the, the archons... Who are you know who are described as sort of uh, like a virus that came? Uh, they're sort of covering up the reality from us, and that you know the that Yahweh, the Old Testament God, is actually one of the 
lowly gods who's trying to run around and say he's the one and only god is there is there actual evidence of that in the nag hammadi and stuff like that where they actually go after yahweh in that way oh yeah the the this the description is very specific uh in, in the nag hammadi text and the church fathers told us this too but everybody said well they're christian they're slanting it you know but then we get the nag hammadi text and that's the actual gnostic bibles and it's very very clear uh, the concept is that there was a, a race of gods, 30 of them uh, at least, uh, that are pure and, and good and everything, and they decided to create lesser gods and lesser things. And one of the lesser gods created the planet, and, and his name was Yahweh and stuff, but he's a little messed up. You know, he, doesn't re- he thinks he's the only one. And he decided to enslave mankind, and there was a goddess named Sophia who decided that that's not right, and she snuck into the Garden of Eden or send an angel into the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent to show them if they just ate of the tree, they would fix the problem they have, and they would know about truth, and they would become like gods. And she wanted to free mankind and womankind from this tyrannical god. And everything got messed up. Everything got destroyed. He tried to destroy the planet with a flood. Sophia managed to save people. So now we're back, and he's been somewhat restrained. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the God of the Old Testament. Again, Jesus and Mary Magdalene are Sophia and one of the higher archons that uh, came to show us that if we meditate and become gods, that will free us from everything. And so it's an interesting conglomeration. There was some of the Gnostics. I mean, the Gnosticism started with Simon Magus out of the Book of Acts. He was called the father of the Gnostics. But there were a few people that actually said that they were these uh, archons or beings, and there's a few of them, like Saturnius, that said that uh, the, these archon beings are the same people in Genesis chapter 6 that came to fix the problem, recreate life in their own way, and the, again, the evil tyrannical god sent a flood and almost destroyed it. And so they're even claiming, and it makes me wonder, you know, because the sons of the fallen angels uh, became demons. I'm assuming the oh, first century Gnostics were demonically possessed, so Saturnius sitting there saying he is an incarnation of one of those beings. He probably was. He was probably demonically possessed. Right. But it's, it's interesting how all that stuff kind of halfway comes together, and there's, a, there's an element of half-truth in it. The way you explained the the whole idea of the Gnostic Gospels and how they twist things around, it sounds a lot like the Luciferian doctrine that a lot of these secret societies hold on to. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I wanted to get your take on the Sumerian text. You know, we haven't really talked about that yet. Do, have you looked into some of the Sumerian literature? Because, you know, I've tried to, and it's really challenging. Like, I don't know exactly what's going on. There's tons of different texts and some, you know, accounts that sort of contradict each other and, uh, you know, I'm, I've tried to get a grasp on who the Anunnaki are, and I, I kind of have an idea, but, you know, because I don't want to really rely on Zachariah Sitchin, because, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has done a pretty good job of showing how some of his ideas are not coherent to what they know with ancient, uh, or what they know with the language of the ancient uh, Sumerians. But have you looked into the Sumer- Sumerian literature, and how does that play into some of the Gnostic ideas that you talked about before? Um, not really. I haven't done a whole lot in that particular area. What I usually uh, stay in or focus on is anything that's an ancient Jewish work or ancient church fathers or ancient rabbinical work. Occasionally, they will touch on things like that. Uh, for instance, when you're going back to S- the Sumerian text, I haven't really read or studied any of the, those particular texts, but I've heard of the uh, um, uh, Anaki 
that you're talking about. But one of the things that I thought was interesting, though, is like there. Uh, if I'm understanding it right, they're supposed to be a race of super beings or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind. Of, it's it's very similar to the archons that you were talking about before, and mm-hmm. how they have kind of like a hierarchy of gods. And you know, there's Anu, who's like the head god, and then there's the 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 class of Anunnaki, and then there's Enki and and Lil, and there's different renderings. Some people say Enlil was um, <clears throat> en- Enki was Satan, and Enlil is Yahweh. Others say Enki and Enlil are both kind of a, a dual personality of Satan. And I mean, there's different views and it gets really confusing. That's why, you know, I was asking maybe uh, if you looked into some of those things. Well, there's one thing that I, that I could tell you that I, when I've thought of these type of things before, they are very similar to the Gnostic concepts, the Gnostic concepts, if they are part of, uh, and, and a lot of the, the religious part of them are very similar to the pre-flood world. And if they are connected with the angels that fell in the demonic world, it makes sense that they would all be connected in that area. Uh, there is a text that talks about um, uh, Nimrod in the, in the book of Jasher that talks about how um, uh, one person, well, Nimrod had a dream that uh, basically Abraham walks up to him and hands him an egg. And, and he takes this egg and the egg hatches and this little bird flies up and flies straight, straight at him and pokes him in the eye. And then he wakes up terrified. So he calls his people to, you know, can you figure out what this dream means? And the dream, of course, means that a descendant of Abraham will kill Nimrod. And, of course, that happens later on in the book of, of uh, Jasher. Um, Esau ends up being the one that actually kills Nimrod. But um, what's interesting about it is the, the dream interpreter that actually came up and correctly interpreted the dream uh, was called uh, Anuki. Hmm. And it was the name of a guy, you know, but this guy accurately interprets dreams and I'm sure is demonic. And if he's in Nimrod's group, he's probably worshiping the, the old powers and connected with the pre-flood world, the pre-flood world's religion rather. So I think it's interesting how you can see, I mean, obviously the names are the same. Right. So in the Sumerian text, you have a race of gods that probably could interpret dreams and do things. And you have one guy in the Jewish text with the same name. Not that they're, absolutely directly connected in this way but it's interesting how those things tie together you know like dead sea scrolls and other things like that you can begin to piece those things together that way sure yeah uh well i wanted to bring us to modern times a little bit and you briefly mentioned earlier that there are several i think you said 50 over 50 uh prophecies that have been fulfilled since 1948 um Mm -hmm. when israel became a nation can you touch on some of those and uh, just, I just want to get into you know our current era now. Yeah, sure. What's interesting is the the church fathers taught um, in, in teaching prophecy that they were all premillennial. They believed in a, a future tribulation, seven year tribulation period, as Daniel taught, and an antichrist, and then the second coming. Uh, so they all taught that, and they said that if you're not premillennial, you know, if you're amillennial, if you believe it's symbolic, then you're just simply an immature Christian. So they were very specific about that. But they taught that you need to compartmentalize the prophecies. And that's what I did. I, I wrote a book by their instruction, basically, called Ancient Prophecies Revealed. And I took uh, prophecies and I put them in the order of fulfillment with the prophecies and then if there's any documentation when it was fulfilled and that kind of thing. And what they taught is, you know, like you would put the pre-flood prophecies, they're obvious, you know, and the ones that happened with uh, Elijah and the Kings and Chronicles, that's in one area. And prophecies about the birth of Christ and Christ, there's over like 
to uh, close to two, three hundred prophecies of Jesus' first coming. You know, and you can document how they were all fulfilled and this kind of stuff. And then you go on up. But one of the things the church fathers had mentioned was you need to look very carefully at all the places that say Israel will return. And what you want to do is look and see, do they return from the north country or from Babylon? And if, if that's the case and it says, I will do such and such, then those prophecies occurred sometime after 536 B.C. Okay? And then they mentioned that, or they taught that in the book of Amos, it talks about there would be two returns and only two returns. So when it says Israel will return from being scattered from all over the planet, from all nations, from, from all over, anything like that, and it says, then I will begin to do one, two, three, four, five. Those prophecies are occurring sometime after Israel's second return. Isaiah in chapter 12 even mentions the second return of Israel. And of course, that all happened in 1948. So what you want to do is look at those passages and know that what it's talking about there is something happening in 1948 or beyond in our time period. And that compartmentalizes everything and you begin to see it very, very clearly. Uh, For instance, in chapter 12 of Isaiah, it says that when they come back the second time, there will be a religion that all the nations that surround Israel will have one, one religion and they will attack and hate Israel. Well, that's Islam. So there's actually a prophecy about Islam, but you wouldn't know it until after 1948. And he begins to talk about how the God of Jacob says that they are a very stupid religion, and the work, the principal work of it, which would be the Quran, amounts to nothing, and whoever chooses that religion is an abomination before the God of Jacob. Wow. Uh, wow. So it's, you know, it's really amazing, but as far as the specific prophecies, uh, Israel was supposed to come back as one nation, not two. They were supposed to come back to the land of Canaan to, to repopulate, not somewhere else. They were supposed to revive the language of Hebrew. They were supposed to f- be founded by a guy named after King David, and that was David Ben-Gurion. Um, they were supposed to come back at a very specific time, uh, much like in Daniel when it talks about so many days after the temple, the Messiah will be cut off. And if you do it on the right calendar, it comes out to... Um, April 2nd, 32 AD is when the Messiah was supposed to die. You know, so the dates are specific. And I'm, I'm not trying to set the date of the rapture or the second coming or anything. But right. when it gives you a number and says from here forward something happens, it's always accurate. In, in Exodus chapter 12, it said that um, the Exodus occurred to the day of the prophecy. And I think all the prophecies are like that. But they were supposed to come back in the land and take back their land on May 14th, 1948, according to our calendar. And there's another timeline prophecy that says they're supposed to take back the Temple Mount, but not build the Temple at a certain date. And on our calendar, that comes out to be June 7th, 1967. And it took hmm. place as prophesied. And yeah. you've, got, you've got the rebuilding of cities and nations, and certain cities that would never be rebuilt are still ruins. Even though it's illogical, they'd make great ports and stuff, but they just don't touch them for some reason. You've got uh, many prophecies about some of these wars and several more that are very clearly coming up. There's specific wars of uh, uh, the the shepherd prophecies. Um, There's supposed to be eight wars between Israel and Syria, uh, involving Israel and Syria, where Israel takes Syrian land. Uh, Between the time of the second return and the time of the Messiah's establishing of his kingdom on earth. Interesting. Four of those have taken place now in the last 60 years, so we've got four more to go. Um, again, one or two of those might be in the tribulation period. I don't know. 
But it's just interesting to put all that together to see them point by point by point coming to pass. Right. So, so where are we now? I mean, how? What's next on the timeline according to your studies? Uh, probably there's a there's a prophecy out of Daniel that talks about when the Antichrist arises, and he's not you know here arising yet or anything. But when he does, he will create his international headquarters between the seas and the holy mountain. And when you look at the possible seas, you've got the Mediterranean and uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Holy Mountain, of course, being Jerusalem. Somewhere in that area, there will be a place where he will have his kingdom. And that's inside the land of Israel, though, and it's not supposed to be Israel. He invades Israel. And so what's interesting to me is in that area, we have the West Bank. Right. So apparently what happens is the West Bank becomes a sovereign state. And according to the prophecies, at that point, they will control the coastline from Egypt all the way up through Sarafan, Lebanon. So there will be another Lebanese war where they'll take southern Lebanon. Uh, the the uh, Jews from the tribe of Benjamin, I think, uh, occupy southern Lebanon at that point. And they colonize the Negev, finally, and the Sephardic Jews that fled uh, from the destruction of uh, the Second Temple uh, come back and colonize the Negev. And uh, there's a lot of interesting prophecies connected with uh, some of those things. So Israel tends to give up a little bit of land. They get a large strip. Apparently, they take back the Golan Heights again. There was a prophecy that they give up the Golan Heights, which I thought was interesting. Uh, In Zephaniah, there's actually a prophecy that talks about how when Israel does come back, and we're talking about the second time, that the population will arise and go to the Philistines, to Samaria, and to Moab which is exactly what happened. The people picked up and went to Jordan, uh, to the West Bank, and to the Gaza Strip. And that's why we have those specific things, exactly as prophesied. And then evil Moab would be greedy for land and take that West Bank area. Well, they did. Jordan took the West Bank and held it for 19 years. And then it's still kind of a up-in-the-air type thing. So it's just amazing how specific these things are. There's a prophecy that says that Israel would finally take southern Lebanon and we know in Ezekiel, the prophecy, the, the border is way up there past Lebanon. We know where the border is right now. The prophecy um, out of Obadiah and Zephaniah will tell you that the new border is Seraphon, Lebanon. It used to be called Zarephath, where Elijah was fed, or Elijah was with the, the lady that had the son, the widow lady. Right. But, that's, but that's between Tyre and Sidon. So uh, the new border of Israel will be between Tyre and Sidon. That's never happened yet. And that's not, you know, post-millennial. That's sometime before the tribulation period. So there's a whole lot of things like that. And people ask me, well, but if Israel has to do all this stuff, you mean the rapture's not going to happen for hundreds of years? It's like, no, there are prophecies with Scripture about the church, and there's prophecies about Israel, and they are not connected at all. The last prophecy about the church is the rapture, and there's nothing left out of the uh, like 20-some prophecies that were about the church age in the last you know, 2,000 years. Uh, so we're ready for the rapture, and that could happen at any time. It's not connected with anything of, of Israel. Right. But now before the Antichrist comes on the scene with Israel, there's a couple of prophecies you know, for Israel to do. So it's, it's, we don't know everything, but uh, it's very, very specific. And it's yeah, exciting. It's, yeah, it is. It's interesting because, you know, we... We just had a terrible Super Bowl, and um, it's hearing you explain it like that. It kind of is like a little play-by-play, 
of what's going to be happening in the next number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we talk about transhumanism a lot here on the show, among other things um, uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with. But are, are you familiar with the term transhumanism? And, and mm-hmm. if you are, do you see any of that coming up in perhaps some of the uh, prophecies that you just mentioned or some you hadn't? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, it, there, there's a scripture that talks about as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And it could specifically just mean they were ignoring the prophecies and going about give, marrying and giving in marriage and just doing their own lives, thinking everything was fine until, boom, it happened. Uh, it could also be talking about the, the Nephilim stuff in the pre-flood world. And when I first started studying this, I, I thought, man, this is just like science fiction. This can never happen. But yeah. now with the transhumanum group and the genetic stuff that we're doing, I mean, we have uh, cats and dogs and mice that glow in the dark and monkeys. Mm-hmm. We have uh, pigs that have parts of uh, human, human enzymes, human parts and stuff like that. One of the most fascinating to me is that they're beginning to mix human and animal DNA to create chimeras, you know, right. and they're, they're not supposed to let it actually go full term, but they're doing it in test tubes, right. supposedly. If that's okay, then the, the the rogue scientist is always going to go further. So, right. And the problem is, if China or somebody is doing that, then we're going to have to try. Otherwise, they might come up with a weapon that we have. You know, it's just a nation thing. If you're doing right. it, we've got to have one too. Yeah. So it, it's a spooky thought of all this stuff. And it's the same science from the pre-flood world that we're having now, only we're beginning to do it. It makes me wonder if we're not either paying attention to old text or following the directions of demons or something. In, in Britain, a couple of years back, they figured out a way to make a cow produce human antibodies. Yeah. And what they did is they, they took a strain of human DNA that they needed. But again, it's that thing about you got to mix the, uh, the chromosomes in the right order. So they take the human DNA and they put it in a mouse and then grow it to do a certain thing, take it out, put it in a chicken, take it out, put it in a hamster, and then take it out and put it in the cow, and it'll work. Because wow. e- each one of those things adds a little certain piece or allows a certain piece to grow that the other one wouldn't. Right. So again, how did they figure this out unless they listened to somebody that had it written down from a long time ago? So it's really spooky to think that those things are happening, and we're having all these different um, cross-species type things, and that severely anger God. The book of Jasher even mentions the fact that they cross-did the species, even animals like cattle with birds. That makes me think of a Pegasus. But, <laughs> yeah. but a Pegasus, I mean, apparently there was something like that, and it was successful, and it severely angered God. Yeah. That's his patent, his stuff. Don't mess, go make your own stuff. Yeah. And I can understand him being like that, because it's going to mess everything up. Right. And that would be one logical reason for destroying the entire world once before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been looking at, uh, I'm putting together Age of Deceit 2, Alchemy, and the Rise of the Beast image. And I'm really looking at the image of the beast and hearing about Israel, all the stuff that's going on there. Uh, it was interesting to me that, that technology is going to be, uh, actually play a role in at least the building of the third temple. Um, you know, there's, uh, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Uh, Rabbi Kaim Richman, who's one of the spokespersons there, or the director, uh, he actually he actually says that there's no reason why we shouldn't use technology, which is the modern miracle, alongside the heavenly miracle, 
And, you know, they plan to integrate all kinds of technology into this third temple. And also, you know, I mean, I've been looking at the image of the beast trying to figure out what it's, what is going on. Uh, the false prophet breathes life into it, you know, so that it may speak. Uh, and then we hear about, you know, artificial intelligence, um, artificial sentience and the creation of like this global brain that they're trying to do. And w- which again is interesting because, you know, uh, I, I believe it's, um, Netanyahu, uh, came out recently. I think this was this year, at the end of January, came out and said, we're trying to, you know, we're creating this kind of like a UN of the internet, a cyber headquarters and Israel's, you know, leading the way type thing. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting how all this is happening. Now, what do you think is the image of the beast and what do you, have you thought about it? And I, and I know you've done um, some studies pointing back to Daniel three, where you know, I think you point out that uh, the, the statue that, uh, people are forced to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar was 60 cubits high, six cubits wide. And then it was the use of the six instruments uh, that, you know, was basically the announcement to start worshiping the image or be thrown into the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, gold. And that's why I look at alchemy and, you know, talk about gold and stuff like that. But what is your opinion of what the image of the beast is going to be? And am I off base here about it being some sort of artificial intelligence or potentially something like that? I've thought about that several times. Um, Again, going back to what the rabbis talked about and the church fathers, what I thought was interesting was, uh, you know, the scripture generally says idols are dumb. They don't speak. They just stand there. So a normal idol is just a piece of rock or whatever. The Antichrist makes an image that actually speaks and causes people that do not worship the beast to be put to death. So it actually does something. So it's not a normal idol in some some respect. So my first thought is some sort of a cyborg, a computer, a artificial life form, something like that. And if it is an artificial life form um, designed in a certain way that a spirit or a demon or Satan or whatever could like mesh, you know, like people are possessed by a demon. Right, uh, but they have a problem doing it because we're in here too. If you had some sort of a biological or artificial being without a soul, and something could come in and possess it, that would work out pretty good for them. But uh, there is a thing in the in the the Old Testament. Uh, one of the practices of the Canaanites was called uh, those who have a familiar spirit. It's called an obi in in Hebrew. And an obi used what was called a teraphim. And I noticed that one of the prophecies that talks about, uh, the, of course, the Antichrist sets up an image in the temple. In um, Hosea, it talks about how the children of Israel will drill many days without an army, without a nation, without a this, without a teraphim. The teraphim were outlawed, so that, that lets you know that somewhere in the neighborhood, uh, in, the, in the near future, there would be teraphim again in Israel. Well, you try to figure out what a teraphim is. You go back and you look at these things. A teraphim was uh, basically a type of ancestor worship statue type thing, but the legend is that a teraphim actually speaks. And hmm. there's two different ways of making a teraphim, and it's described in Jasher and in a few other places. But what I thought was interesting is it's connected then to this old pagan religion. Right. So if you have some sort of a demonic manifest in a statue or a, a teraphim, the way it's supposed to work, or in modern times, one that's electric or computerized would probably make it even easier. Right. So it, it's probably going to be something like that, uh, I would assume, as far as the image goes, unless somehow it's symbolic of something else, which 
we would we may not know for sure until the time comes, but I would imagine it has to be something like that. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, I have one more question slash topic, and then we'll probably wrap it up here pretty soon. Um, now, again, I bring up these things that we talk about a lot on the show because we love to get as many points of view as possible. And um, one of these topics is UFOs. Now, a lot goes into sort of a biblical explanation of UFOs, and a lot of people talk about different things in uh, different ancient texts, whether it be the Hindu writings or the Book of Enoch or things like that. In your literary explorations, have you ever, you know, been caused to think about UFOs and with any connection with things that you've seen or read? Uh, yeah, there there are in some of the other, the, like you said, the Hindu writings and stuff like that. What I think is, and even like uh, some of the early American writings in uh, Christopher Columbus's diary, when he came over to the New World, there were strange lights that went back and forth, and nobody knew huh. what those were. And so, yeah. no big deal, they ignored them and went on, they didn't seem to do anything. So, these things have been around for a long time, and I think most Christians know that uh, we have angels, we have demons, we have God, we have human beings. Uh, whether or not there are or are not other aliens out there, other physical creations of God, uh, uh, we know the demons are here. We know the time is short. We know the Antichrist is coming. We know this deception is coming, because Scripture tells it is, and it proves itself by the prophecies that evidently it is coming. It's right on target. So with that in mind, uh, people that are in the New Age type stuff or the the the, the UFO type stuff, the things that you notice is that a lot of them are into occultism. UFOs are connected with crop circles, and when you look at the overall crop circles, uh, most of them are somewhat demonic, uh, the symbols that they use and things like that. So most of the Christians that I know of, and I kind of believe this way myself, I think it's just a demonic manifestation. If demons revealed themselves and said we're demons, nobody would mess with them. But if they reveal themselves and say we're interdimensional species that have come here to help you, people would fall for it, no matter what they say. Right. And I think that's probably going to be part of the deception or, or the lie, as far as that goes. One thing that I thought was interesting is, um, a couple of years ago, we had the incident where the little UFO thing was right over the dome of the, of the rock, right on yeah. the Temple Mount, and then shot it. And yes. Many people saw it. And then it kind of like for, forgotten, and I thought, you know, I'm not much into UFOs or signs in the sky, but when they connect with something like Israel, that's something that I want to pay attention to, a blood moon or something like that. And what I thought was interesting is, to me, it was like, you know, you know, it's a possibility the Israelis are testing out a, a new type of drone or something, so maybe. But it seems like something that came down and basically pointed to the Dome of the Rock, and then somebody on the Temple Mount apparently shot at it, one of the Muslim guards or something, and it just shot straight up and disappeared. Wow. Well, one of the things I was thinking of is like, okay, if that's a demon or an angel or something like that, it's pointing to the dome saying, now, today, something is starting, and it's pointing to the dome, which would be Muslim or Jewish or temple or something. And what I noticed was, if you go back and uh, I'm not, the, the numbers are a little sketchy, but if you go back within a week of that thing happening, you have the rise of the Arab Spring. Right, right. And I thought that was really interesting. Somebody is saying to anybody who wants to pay attention, now this is starting right here, and huh. then takes off. So, you know, those type of things are really interesting when you see those. 
And stuff like that happens, and you may not be able to know what it really means for a year or two. Yeah. And you can look back and say, oh, I bet I know exactly what that meant. Absolutely. All right. Well, very good. Thank you very much for your uh, time and your wisdom and your research, Dr. Ken Johnson, everybody. Where can we check out your uh, stuff? I have a website, biblefacts.org, uh, F-A-C-T-S, not like a fax machine. Um, and I have a lot of videos and uh, free stuff there. I've written, uh, like I said, the 21 books, and they're there at the bookstore. They're basically just connections from my website to Amazon, so you would buy them through Amazon. Right. Uh, so it's credible. You know I'm not going to steal your money or anything. But um, <laughs> BibleFacts.org is probably the best place. And you can go there and, and drop me a line if you liked it or didn't like it or have comments about anything. Absolutely. All right. Well, one more time, Dr. Ken Johnson, thank you so much for being on the show. This is really fun. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed by the authors and guests on this program are not necessarily those held by the hosts of Canary Cry Radio or its community. Make sure to visit CanaryCryRadio.com for show notes, episode archives, forums, and more. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can contact us by clicking on the contact tab or emailing us directly at CanaryCryRadio at gmail.com. If this episode touched your life, your worldview, or your beating little heart in any way, please consider supporting the show financially. You can do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking on the support tab. There you can sign up for a small monthly donation. Or if commitment is just not your thing, you can leave a one-time donation in any amount. Canary Cry Radio is and will always be free, so your support is what keeps us on the air. So make sure to catch the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. Until then, think outside the cage!